Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. The Christian faith is at times outrageous. I mean, the, the Bible, our Lord Jesus, uh, sometimes uh, just makes outrageous, outrageous claims. And for some of you here who are not yet followers of Christ, uh, maybe some of you are taking a look uh, at the claims of Christ for the very first time seriously. Uh, you're looking at this with fresh eyes, and you're thinking, good, gr- really? Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ and um, have been around his family for a long time, we can tend to just hydroplane right over some of these statements of the Bible. And, uh, and we become so familiar with them that we use these claims, we pray them, we speak them, we teach them, and we, however, don't really know what they actually mean. That's a problem. Well, I'm going to take on one of those today, and in 30 minutes, you may still not know <laughs> what, it, what it means, uh, uh, so, but we're going, to, we're going to jump in. We are in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Uh, in these last week, today, and maybe for a couple of weeks to come, we're going to be looking at some of the big, big truths of the Christian faith. Uh, and they're expressed in, in either phrases or words, terminology. Now, last week we, we uh, defined a term as compressed truth in any field, in any field. Whether it's law enforcement and justice, whether it's uh, construction. Last week we used the, the uh, Chick-fil-A world and we used the airline world and we used football uh, realms uh, to describe some of the terms that are unique to those, uh, those uh, cultures and those organizations. Uh, they give those organizations uh, and those, those bodies of knowledge the ability to make progress in learning and discussion because they've taken concepts and they've given them names, terms, either phrases or words. Again, in the football world, we begin to throw out terms like horse collar and first down and pre-snap read and some of those things uh, that, that everybody in the football world will immediately know what we're talking about. You don't have to read an essay every time you're trying to make progress on it. The Christian faith is the same way. Now, we have been on a journey over the past few months through the book of Galatians. It's a letter that was written by a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, the greatest theologian in the history of the church. He wrote the majority of the New Testament, inspired by God's Spirit. He was the first missionary, Christian missionary. And in his first missionary journey, he and his missions team had led to faith in Christ and gathered into churches uh, Gentile, non-Jewish followers of Christ. The very first followers of Christ were all Jewish. But these were the non-Jewish or Gentiles, as they called them, followers of Christ, in a region called Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And in communities all over that region, they had gone, were the very first people to communicate 
new and abundant life and eternal life through faith in Christ to the people in those communities. And many, many, many of them responded. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. And yes, and they turned from their sin and they placed their faith in Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing else. For to be set right with God and set right with themselves in the world in eternity. And many of them did that and they were gathered into churches. Not long afterwards, after the missionary Paul and his team departed, there were some teachers who came from Jerusalem who were Jewish Christians, but they didn't have a proper understanding of the Christian faith. And they began to teach wrongly. They began to undercut the work of God's Spirit in the life of all these new believers and all these churches. And they began to communicate a... uh, an add-on truth, a Jesus plus something is necessary. It's necessary to become Jewish culturally, they said, uh, to become a Christian. And it, it disturbed and destroyed the faith of, of many of these people. The Apostle Paul wrote this book to cut short the advancement of the false teaching, to uh, clarify the message of how to be set right with God through faith in Jesus alone and to solidify that in the life of all those new believers. We've discovered that we need that today. Now, he began this letter by telling Freddie, he told his own story, told his own faith story, just like you and I have told our story to each other about how, you know, how we grew up and a little bit about our life before Christ, how we came to faith in Christ, the difference he's made in our life since. He was doing that to clarify the gospel and to bring validity to his own ministry, that, that he was a reliable voice uh, for God to these people. But then all of a sudden, at chapter 2, verse 15, he takes a hard right turn and gets quite theological in his terminology. He stops telling his own story, and he begins to do biblical theological truth reflection he begins to state some of the great truths of the christian faith and it's all in this terminology many scholars believe it's the first time he ever used these words at least wrote these words because most scholars believe that this book of galatians was the first letter that he wrote that made it into the bible his earliest writings possibly written in ad 49 somewhere along in there about 15 to 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so last week we talked about some of those terms. I'm not going to go back over those. You can listen to that. But I want to jump to a truth today that answers the question, okay, where does the power for living come from? Some of you have been hesitant to place your faith in Jesus because you say, I'm afraid I won't be able to stick with it. I'm afraid I won't be able to live the life. I'm afraid that, that I'll be a failure at it. And, and, I, I'm, and so you've been hesitant. Today, this truth uh, answers that question. Where does the power to live a life pleasing to God come from? And how do I get into that life in the first place? And uh, we learn this truth, first of all, by jumping into a, uh, a, a very strange phrase. And so I want you to look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, now as we open your word, please teach us. You said that you would send the Holy Spirit to us and that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Guide us into all truth. Would you do that in such a fashion today that it would be transforming for us for the better? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now the Apostle Paul starts uh, in, with kind of segues into this with verse 19. He says, through the law I've died to the law so that I might live to God. Wow, that, everybody got that? Through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Well, there, that's, a, that's a lot of phraseology. Let me just, I don't want to spend much time there, so let me sum it up this way. Paul was Jewish. Uh, now, we have portrayed the Jewish faith by being a, a, a work your way, salvation by works faith, but I don't believe that was it. Many scholars did not believe it was it. I don't think that the Jews had a problem with understanding the concept of being set right with God through faith. Where they had heartburn was over what the faith was in. Because they had placed their faith in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham and faith in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, the moral and ethical uh, laws of God given in the first five books of the Old Testament. Faith in the fact that I'm a descendant of Abraham plus keeping, uh, doing my best to keep the law of God will set me right with God. That's faith. That's faith. But it was faith in the wrong thing. It was, it, was, it was faith in the wrong thing. Where they had heartburn was anytime you said uh, a person is justified with God, set right with God, by faith apart from the law. Apart from the law. Well, Paul understood that the law of Moses was given to communicate to human beings like the Jews and you and me that no one's capable of keeping it. That God has standards, here they are, and we can't keep them. Matter of fact, we can't even keep our own standards of morality and justice. And therefore, the law was designed to bring a sense of sin and condemnation and to realize that the penalty for not keeping perfectly God's expectations is death. An eternal death separated with God forever in a place called hell. A, uh, a spiritual death, which means separation from God uh, here. A living death, which means a mere existence rather than the way, the life that God originally intended for human beings to live. And so Paul is saying through a, an accurate understanding of the purpose of the law of Moses, I died to my, de- my faith in Keeping the law as a way of being set right to God. I died to a wrong object of my faith so that I might live to God. Now, how many, how many do we have? How many of you in here are not Jewish? Okay, vast majority. We don't have much of a concept. We're not, we're not really worried too much about keeping the law. We are dependent on other barriers. We're dependent on other things. You know, other, other way, primarily, uh, we Gentiles tend to depend on moralism. We put our faith in moralism. In fact, moralism is Christianity's toughest competition today. Moralism says, I'm going to be okay with God by becoming a better person. Becoming a better person. 
Islam is not Christianity's toughest competition. Judaism's not Christianity's toughest competition. Buddhism, Shintoism, you, you know, Hinduism, that's not Christianity's toughest competition. Christianity's toughest competition is moralism, which says, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. That's, what our, that's where we place our faith. So, Ray, if we were going to apply this to our life, it might be more accurate for guys like me and you and people in our culture who've grown up to say, through the law, I realized that I, I am going to turn from my wrongly directed faith in my own goodness and on trying to be good, become a better person, a good enough person that God would accept me. I'm dying to that so that I might live to God. And how does Paul live to God? He said, I was able to live to God because, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, how many of you have heard that phrase before? I have been crucified with Christ. Some of you memorized that verse as a young Christian. Anybody? That was one of the first verses they gave me in, in, in the Navigators in college. Memorized Galatians 2.20. I've been praying. I've been crucified with Christ. Sean, you remember that great song? I am crucified with Christ and yet I live. You know, everybody sings that with great gusto. And I just realized, what does that actually mean? Okay, because the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus at the hands of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea 2,000 years ago, is an established historical fact. That he was crucified outside the city gate on the hill called Golgotha between two thieves. There were only three people on the hill that day. And one of them was not, not a single one of them was the Apostle Paul. Does he mean I was, I was crucified? With, here he is 49 years later walking around on the planet saying, Well, they crucified me back there with Jesus. I'm dead. No, he'd been an idiot. He'd been a, you know, had the people would... He'd have the same kind of view as a person who thinks he's a fried egg. I mean, I'm, no, no. Obviously, that's not what he meant. That I was physically crucified with Christ. Okay, we got that covered, right? We know Paul was not physically crucified on Calvary with Christ. So, what does he mean? Well, can we just say right up front that understanding what he actually does mean might be a little difficult? I mean, it just might be a little bit uh, difficult uh, here. And so, to, um, uh, in fact, the Bible calls all of these things related to new life in Christ, to becoming a Christian, to, the, to, to regeneration, to being the, born again, or receiving the new birth, or a, a new life in Christ. All of these things about becoming a Christian, the Bible calls it a mystery. And the biblical definition of mystery means a truth that we would not know at all, certainly not understand, unless God had not revealed it to us. And he, he, he is, so he says, this, is, this could be a little difficult. In fact, you probably will probably never fully understand it, uh, but God will reveal to us what we can know. Jesus himself told a man a similar thing. Michael, he said to a man named Nicodemus, who was a a political community leader and religious leader in uh, Jerusalem uh, over the Jews at the day that came to see him and ask him about these spiritual things. And Jesus told him this thing about being born again in the new birth and, and uh, being, come, becoming uh, adopted into the family of God. This is a little bit, it's, it's a little bit difficult to understand because it's like trying to understand the wind. Jesus said, you, you can't 
see the wind coming. You can't see where it's going. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it, it goes. Uh, but you can feel it, and you feel the effects, and you see the effects of the wind. You know it's happening. You know it's true. You can see the effects of people coming, experiencing the new birth, experiencing new life in Christ. You, you see it. You see these... These transformations of life uh, happening around us, but understanding exactly how it happened, and it's a little bit like trying to fully understand uh, the wind. So can we just say up front that this might be a little difficult to understand? So I'm going to ask you to work hard with me again, like last week. So get your pen, get your note sheet, get up on the edge of your chair, and uh, take a deep breath and uh, engage here. To understand what Paul meant by... Um, I have been crucified with Christ, we must first kind of understand what it means to be a Christian. Now, the theological, one of the terms that the theologians use to describe our being a Christian is, Leroy's like, it, it speaks of being in union with Christ, our union with Christ. You see, the Bible says that when we are saved, when we are born again, when we experience the new birth, when we become a Christian, when we become a follower of Jesus, however, whatever terminology you want to use to describe conversion, the point of conversion, the point of coming to faith in Jesus, when we experience that, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God takes us and immerses us into Christ and His life. It uses the term in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, jot that down. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the Bible says, For we were all baptized, it uses that word. And the word baptized is the Greek word baptizo, and it means to immerse, it means to dunk, it means to, uh, to drown. And, and so uh, it's, he says, the, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. The body of Christ. We were taken by God's Spirit. When we placed our faith alone in Christ alone for our salvation alone, He took us and baptized us, placed us, immersed us, joined us to, placed us in union with Christ and His life. So when you become a Christian, you are joined with, you are joined with Christ. You have this new life in, uh, in Christ. And so... Um, it uses the term, you know, baptized by the Spirit for that purpose. And when we do a physical baptism to celebrate new life, we're symbolizing the spiritual baptism into Christ that's already taken place. Got it? So a baptism is. And so we are depicted in the Bible, believers in Jesus as being in one another. John fifteen four, Jesus said, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. We're depicted as being in each other. The believer is also described in many places as being in Christ. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, the Bible describes you as being in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of the most recognizable verses on this truth says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It means he's new and different, new and better. He's in a, in a condition he's never been in before. The old has passed away. 
died to the old, behold, the new has come. Uh, Christ is also described as being in the believer. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. There's that word. It's a mystery. Unless God would reveal it, we wouldn't get it. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, or the non-Jewish people, the glorious wealth of this mystery of new life, new birth. And here it is, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory, the hope of transformation, the hope of perfection one day when we step into to heaven. So we're described by the Bible as being in one another. Jesus is in us. We are in Christ. Now, that's what happens when we place our faith in Jesus and we are born again. We are converted. We are regenerated. We are made new. We become Christians. Got it? You are in Christ. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you are not in Christ and He is not in you. Just so you know where you stand. Now, back to Paul saying, I have been crucified with Christ. He's using a a verb tense in the Greek language that refers to an action that was completed in the past that's so powerful it has ongoing uh, consequences and results in the future. It means I've been crucified with Christ and it's still impacting me today. When he said I've been crucified with Christ, he speaks of the crucifixion with Jesus and somehow, somehow, we are connected with Jesus. How could Jesus be crucified and we be crucified with Him in, in, not in a physical sense? Well, let's talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, there, were, there were two characteristics at least of that death on the cross. Write down the word substitution. Substitution. Write down the word representative. Representative. The crucifixion of Jesus was both substitutionary and representative. Let me explain that uh, just a second. A, a substitute is a person who acts in the place of another person. Right? Right? Got it? Uh, for example, if uh, Eli Manning, quarterback Eli Manning of the New York Giants, has a relapse of the, the touch of the flu he had a few days ago, and doesn't play in the game, besides some people losing a bunch of money, uh, there's going to be something else that takes place. There's going to be a substitute, a guy named David Carr. Anybody know who David Carr is? You ever heard of David Carr's name? About three of you. Yeah, that's right. How many have heard Eli Manning's name? A bazillion of you. Yeah, David Carr could be a little nervous if Eli Manning has a relapse of the flu. Come Super Bowl time. But should that happen... David Carr will substitute and play quarterback for the New York Giants in the Super Bowl in the place of Eli Manning. Manning will not be there. He will not participate in any way whatsoever on the field. That is a substitute. A substitute acts in the place of another. Now, look at me. Look at me. When Jesus died on the cross, He did so as our substitute. Willingly as our substitute. Because sin has to be atoned for. 
But God loved us so much, He couldn't bear the thought of us having to atone for our sin uh, on our own. And so He provided another way. He, in the form of His Son, God the Son, came and went to the cross and took our place. In the place of. He was crucified in the place of you and me. Bearing the penalty for our sin, bearing our death, bearing the penalty for and punishment for our sin, paying the price, the penalty for our sin, He substituted for you and me. Now, also, the death of Jesus on the cross was representative. Let's talk about that a second. A representative is one who acts on behalf of, not in place of, but on behalf of, Another person in such a way as to still involve the person that they are representing in the action. It's like an agent or like an ambassador speaks for the government of, of, of whatever country they are from. It's as if the country or the president of, or the ruler of that country is speaking, speaking in be, on behalf of, but still involves their rep, who they are representing in the action. Now, Eli Manning's sports agent is a guy by the name of Tom Condon. He's one of the most powerful and popular and, and successful sports agents who's ever uh, existed. He's the guy who negotiated the historic $98 million contract for Manning's brother, Peyton. And so, uh, pretty high-powered guy. Now, when it comes time for contract negotiations with the New York Giants, Tom Condon will go to those meetings, not Eli Manning. He will go as his representative. He will go as his agent. And he is authorized to speak for, not instead of, for Eli Manning in those negotiations with a giant's organization. He is his agent. And he is authorized to, and whatever, whatever he says and agrees to, Manning is saying and agreeing to. Got it? And that's the deal. That's the way it works. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, not only did He do it as our substitute, He also did so as our agent. He also did so as our ambassador. He also did so as our representative. And, um, and what He did for us, by us being united with Him, being in Him, being joined with Him uh, at salvation, it means that... When, when He died on the cross, we participated spiritually in that death. We died with Him. We died to sin. We died to self. We died to our old objects of faith. We died to all that old self-centered stuff. We died. We died to it on the cross. We were crucified with Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. We were raised in Him to have newness of life, Romans chapter 6 says. To live the new life, the resurrection life, the brand new life, the abundant and eternal life. We were raised with Him. It, it happened, the, ra the reason that Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ, is because he was in Christ. So when did I get in Christ? When did my crucifixion to sin, and to self, and to the world thought and value system, and to every other object of faith rather, other than Jesus, when, did I, when was I crucified uh, to all that? The moment you trusted in Jesus. The moment you were saved. The moment you were converted. The moment you were born again. You were crucified with Christ. That's what He means. 
That's what he means. He says, I was crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Now, wait a minute. How could he no longer be living if he's writing those words? Well, remember, he's not speaking of a physical death. He's he's saying, the old I no longer lives. The old person who put their faith in being a descendant of Abraham and in the keeping of the law of Moses. My old self-centered, sin-driven, world-loving guy, that guy no longer lives. I'm a new a new person lives. I am a new creation. That is what 2 Corinthians 5:17 means when it says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. They're new. We are restored to the condition. We're actually being made new and we're old at the same time. We're bringing brand new inside, but we're being restored to the old human condition that God originally intended for human beings to have prior to the sin of Adam. The old things passed away. I no longer live. I have been cleansed, he says, but Christ lives in me. Okay, here we go again. This is the outrageous thing. So some of you say, for the first time you may be seeing this. He's saying that Jesus Christ lives in him. You're saying, preacher, that Jesus Christ lives in you. Come on. That sounds outrageous to me. It is, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, if we get ho-hum about that, we've not been thinking about our faith enough. The Bible claims that when we die to ourself, turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus, He comes to dwell in us. He's not just the God who is with us. For the first time, He is the God who is in us, in the presence of His Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in our bodies, in our personalities, uh, in the person of, of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit... The Spirit of Christ, they're the one in the same. He comes to live in us. And so Paul says, uh, Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, in this body, this life I'm living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. I live by faith. I live by faith. Christ lives in me. He comes to dwell in me. Now the Bible says when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, He begins the process of of, uh, changing us morally. I mean, what became true legally at the point of our conversion and God declaring us set right with Him, He begins to make real practically, morally, and spiritually. He begins to turn us into the kind of people who naturally say, think, and do the things that Jesus would do were He here. He writes His law on our hearts. In Ezekiel, He said, I'll take your heart of stone out and I put in a heart of flesh and, uh, and I, you will be my people and I will be your God. He, he, comes, he changes us. He begins to transform us. The Bible says that He renews us in our inner person by the Holy Spirit. He begins to renew us, our being. 
He begins to uh, strengthen us. He strengthens us for what we need when we need it. So that we can actually live as we sang earlier. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And why don't you start in me, Lord? Your reign and rule come in me. Your will be done in me. And he begins to live it out. There's a great passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says this. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Here we go. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Through us. He begins to act like Himself. He begins to think like Himself. He begins to speak like Himself. He begins to uh, choose and, and uh, initiate and create, uh, generate ideas. He, he begins to uh, feel. He begins to express His life through our bodies. Now, I don't care what anybody says. That's outrageous. That's outrageous. That is how you live the life that Christ saves you for. You don't do it. He does it in you. You just let Him by faith. So, what's this by faith stuff? Let me give a real simple definition. This is not original with me. I first was told this by a great Bible teacher by the name of Manly Beasley, who died about 25, four years ago. About two months, John, before he was going to speak at this new church. He, he defined living by faith this way. Living by faith, faith is simply living as if what the Bible says is true. Faith is living as if the Bible were true. So I live each day now because Christ dwells in me. I live by faith in Him. What do you mean? Let me give you one example. When I died with Christ, when I was crucified with Christ, and He paid the penalty for my sin, I experienced the benefit of the death on the cross, which was forgiveness of my sin. Do you know the last time I felt guilty of sin? Do you know the last time I felt shame? Do you know the last time I felt any regret? Me neither. Why? Well, Jesus said, if I'm crucified with Him, in the Bible He says, I will, your sins, in Isaiah, your sins which were scarlet shall be made white as snow. I'm not sure all that means, but it sounds like a pretty good thing. And He said, I will take your sins and remove them as far away from you as the east is from the west, and I will remember your sins no more. You mean God will not only remove them from me, but He won't remember them? Okay. That sounds like a pretty good deal too. Uh, He says, I will take your sins and plunge them in the depths of the sea. I will create in you a clean heart and renew a right spirit within you. So faith is, living by faith is, I just every day just live as if that were really true. Which means I don't think a thing about my old sins anymore. Why? They're not here. They're gone. Forgiven. Do you worry about paying a bill that's already been paid? Do you? I mean, utility bill? Do you? I mean, you've already paid it. Do you go back and pull those receipts out and just fret over them? Oh, gosh. Oh, no, Lord, look at that electric bill. Paid it two years ago. God, what are we going to do? Do you do that? 
Some of you do it with your sins. Some of you believers do it with your sins. You're not living by faith. Live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and delivered Himself up for you. He says, I w- he says that He will manifest His life through our body. So I say, okay. When I, Bill, I start my day, usually before my feet hit the ground, uh, the floor, I'll say, okay, Lord, today, I, will you please live your life through my body like you said you would? I'm asking you to put your thoughts in my mind, put your words on my lips, put your choices and decisions in my heart, my will, my spirit. Would you fi- act through me, feel through me, relate through me? Will you love people through me today? Will you seek and save lost people through me today? Will you labor to form your life more fully in believers through me today? Will you lead the church with all diligence? through me today. I'm I'm just, the things that he says we're supposed to do, I'm supposed to do in the word. And then I just look at that verse that says, I no longer live, he lives in me. And so I just go through the day assuming that he's doing all that. It's a fun way to live. I live as if that were really true. So I'm not at every moment, you know, rich thinking, okay, am I thinking these thoughts or is Jesus thinking these thoughts? Am I speaking these words or is Jesus speaking these words? Am I, am I making the right choice to spend my time this way or is Jesus? No, I just, I just go live life with... It's freedom. It's the life of freedom that the gospel and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit brings to uh, believers. It is the way to be free. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Why not? See, I can, the reason I can put faith in Him is He's the God who loved me, not the God who rejects me, not the God who's out to get me, not the God who came to condemn the world, but the God who came to save the world, He said. That's the God. He said, so, so I can with great confidence put my trust in the God, the, the God, Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Karl Barth was uh, arguably the most influential theologian of the 20th century. He was a Swiss theologian. I know, I know all of you probably read his 14-volume Church Dogmatics uh, while you're watching the ball game. I'm sure you do. This, uh, you know. But um, a prolific, great influence, great influence. Uh, his, his, he wrote, honestly, I'm not exaggerating, this is not just preaching here, this somewhere beyond millions of words about God. Deep thinker, lived a long time with Jesus trying to sort these things out. In 1962, he made his one and only visit to the United States and they held a press conference for Bart. And they, uh, he was asked the question, uh, Dr. Bart, of, of all of the millions of words you've written about God and the things you've learned about God, what's the most important and the the most significant truth that you have learned about Him? And he paused a second and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The God who loves us, who loved us and delivered Himself up for us. It's outrageous. Only thing about it, it's outrageous and true. Pray with me. Pray with me.
Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.